one sermon. That's it, one sermon. If I could preach one sermon for the rest of my life, it would be the sermon that I'm preaching today. At Redemption, we talk about a lot of different things. My prayer is that at the end of my life, I would be able to say what the Apostle Paul says, that I did not fail to preach to you the entire counsel of the Word of God. At Redemption, we are not afraid to teach or talk about any subject that's in the Bible. We've preached series about marriage. We've preached series about spiritual gifts. We've preached series about controversial topics. We've preached sermons over friendship and over money. We preach sermons over how to raise your children. We talk and we teach about whatever the Bible talks and teaches about. And all those sermons are good and all those topics are great. But if there was one thing that I could preach over, if there's one thing that I could teach you, it would be the message that we're preaching today. And that is about the cross. Today we're going to be talking about the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. One sermon, the most important message, the most important sermon, the most important thing that you will learn in your life. More important than who you date, more important than who you marry, more important than where you work, more important than how you raise your kids, more important than what your GPA is, and more important than where you're going for lunch after church gets out. The most important thing, the most important decision you will ever make is about the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes and he says this. He says, I have delivered unto you what I have received of first importance, of most importance. It is the most important, preeminent, prominent, the most defining thing about your life is what do you think about the cross? What I have also received that Christ died for our sins. After three years studying the gospel of Mark, we're in sermon, I believe, 65 in our study through the gospel of Mark, three years, it has all been culminating to and building towards this moment right here, the crucifixion of Jesus. And on your way in downtown, you probably drove past two very large churches, And on the outside of those churches, there was a cross. On their steeple, there was a cross. One of them, they have a logo outside of their building, and that is of a cross. I'm sure growing up in Southeast Texas, many of you grew up in the church, and maybe the churches that you grew up in had a cross. Maybe you went to a a jewelry store, and there's a cabinet, and it's filled with gold or silver crosses. One of the most popular tattoos that people have today is a tattoo of the cross. And my fear for many of us is that we become so familiar with the cross that we take the cross for granted. That sermons like today over the crucifixion of Jesus are reserved for Easter Sunday. And so one Sunday out of the year, you get a 30-minute message, and then the rest of the year, the other 52 weeks, we talk about something different. And there's nothing wrong with talking about other things or different things, but the cross of Jesus Christ is the most important thing. And so I worry and I wonder if we've become so familiar with the cross that now we take the cross for granted that we don't appreciate the cross, we don't marvel at the cross, we don't wonder about the cross, and we don't base and center our lives on the meaning of the cross. There is nothing more important than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more beautiful, there is nothing more powerful, there is nothing more special, there is nothing more wondrous, there is nothing more amazing, there is nothing more pressing on our lives than the cross of Jesus Christ. And so today, if you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 15, verses 20 through 41, and I get the great privilege and honor today to preach the cross. I was talking with a young woman. She was uh, our server at a restaurant this week, and she saw me reading a book. Actually, it's a book I'm going to recommend to you right now. 
Uh, it's called Vintage Jesus by Mark Driscoll. A lot of this message is going to come from this book. And so if you want to do a deep dive and study on the life of Jesus in the cross, I highly recommend this book. So I'm sitting there, and I'm reading this book. And she comes up and she says, hey, what are you reading? And she looks at it and she's like, oh, it's about Jesus. I said, yeah. She said, well, I'm not a religious person. I said, neither was I until I started going to church. And so you should come to church with us. And if she were to come here today, I hope she received the invitation and the invite card. But if she were to come here today, she would hear the most important sermon she could hear, the message of the cross. And so today I'm going to teach you the, the message of the cross. And it's in four parts. The first part is the history of the cross, the origins and where the cross comes from. The second thing we're going to look at is the horror of the cross, what Jesus endured and experienced in our place for our sins. The third thing we'll look at is the humility of the cross. And then lastly, I want to show you the hope of the cross. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up, actually backtrack to last week, and we're going to look at verse 20. Here's what verse 20 says, and they led him, that's Jesus, out to crucify him. That word right there, crucify, that's all Mark gives us as an explanation and a setup about the cross. The Bible authors, they don't go into great detail when describing the cross, mostly because anyone who lived in that day and time, they knew exactly what the cross meant. They probably have seen it. They were eyewitnesses to crucifixions. But you and me, we are 2,000 years removed. And so there's what is known as a cultural gap. There's a gap between what we know today and what they knew then. When it comes to reading their Bible, there, there's one thing that you must understand is that the Bible is not written to us. The Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. There was an original audience that Mark was writing to, and he was actually writing to the church in Rome. And so the church in Rome, they would have been very familiar with what this word means, and they crucified him. But for us today, we're, we're not familiar with the term crucifixion. We have sanitized the cross, which means we haven't truly come to appreciate the cross. And when we sanitize the cross, we become desensitized to the cross. And so let me explain to you a little bit about the origins, the history of crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't invented by the Romans. In fact, it was invented about 800 years before by the Persians. And the Persians invented crucifixion, and it was actually a form of torture there would impale a person, a prisoner or a victim or maybe a thief or a criminal. They would take a large wooden stake and they would spear them, drop it into a hole, and then they would allow their body to be impaled and slowly slide down the pole publicly until they died. That's the origin. But then Rome came and conquered Persia and they said, hey, that's actually a really good form of torture, but it's not nearly as effective. So let's go ahead and perfect it. And so the Persians invented the cross, but the, the Romans, they're the ones who actually made the cross famous. One of the things that sets Rome apart from other nations is that they would actually adopt the culture of the places they conquered. And so they took the cross from the Persians, and they perfected it, and then they made it even more heinous and ma made it more brutal. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst, the lowest, the, the most heinous criminals that there were. The Roman philosopher Cicero, he says that it was indecent for any Roman to ever even mention the cross in public. Josephus, the early Jewish historian, said, and I quote, the cross is the most wretched way for a man to die. And even the Jewish people revered and feared the cross because in Deuteronomy 21, I believe, it says anyone who is hung on a cross is cursed by God. Anyone who is hung on a tree, rather, is cursed by God. And yet what we see is that Jesus comes and he is hung on a tree because Jesus bears the curse in our place. The crucifixion was reserved for murderers, traitors, thieves, rebels, prisoners of war. Those are the ones who were crucified. And Romans did not even crucify their own citizens. But that doesn't mean that crucifixions were rare. Crucifixions were very common in that day. There's 
History tells us that when Spartacus fell in battle, Rome actually crucified 6,000 of the slaves and soldiers that rebelled against them. And it would be a stretch of 120 miles of highway. I mean, just imagine this for a moment. Think about it. If you were to drive from Orange to Houston, that's about 125 miles. And every 20 feet as you drive down the road, there would be a man screaming, bleeding, cursing, dying on a cross. And that their mother and their father, their friends would be gathered around the cross and soldiers would be gathered around the cross. And the whole trip to Houston, you're just watching men die along the side of the road. That's how popular and how normal crucifixion was in the days of Rome. Jesus was most likely familiar with crucifixion as well. If, you're, if you know the Bible in Acts chapter 5, the high priests, they make this claim about Jesus and the movement that's happening in the early church. And they say, this reminds us of Judas of Galilee. Judas of Galilee was a revolutionary. He was a religious leader. And about the age of 10 years old, Jesus would have seen Judas of Galilee be crucified. Where was Jesus from? He was from Galilee. And along with Judas, his disciples, his followers, and his family, there would have been hundreds of people crucified in Jesus' hometown growing up. And I could just imagine Jesus as a little boy looking up and seeing these men on a cross and saying, this is my fate. This is my future. This is where my life will end up at. And he still moves boldly towards the cross. All of Mark is leading us up through the life the ministry of Jesus culminating with his death on a cross. Unlike our day where executions are held privately in a back room somewhere, that's not how executions worked in Rome. Instead of being private, they were actually very public. The pictures where we see that Jesus is crucified on top of a hill somewhere far outside of town is not likely how Jesus would have been crucified. Jesus would have been crucified openly, publicly, and shamefully. They would do it in busy thoroughfares and busy streets as a form of state-sponsored terror. So just imagine if you're leaving church today and you decide that you want to go to the mall or you want to go to a restaurant or maybe you're taking your kids to a soccer game or to a t-ball game. What would happen is you would go and pull into the parking lot and you would find a man being crucified in the parking lot. As you're trying to go shopping, you have to shield your kids because there's someone screaming on the side of the parking lot because they're being crucified publicly. And they would crucify you at eye level. Not up high, but they would actually crucify you eye level so that way you could look into the face of the person who is being crucified. And you could look into their eyes and the passerbys, they would spit on them, they would mock them, they would jeer them. Roman soldiers would be gathered around them, just making the torture even more heinous and hideous. And in a sense of revenge, those who were being crucified, they would actually hurl insults at those who were walking by. Normally, they would spit on them, they would urinate on them, they would curse them out, cuss them out. And it was a very public display. It was a very shameful display, but it was a very common display in first century Rome. Mark just says here that they crucified him. He doesn't give us detail. He doesn't give us a description. He doesn't just tell us what happens. It just says, and they crucified him. The cross was the most brutal, the most barbarous, the most heinous, the most horrific death that anyone could ever experience in the history of mankind. It was vile. It was wretched. And yet, today the cross has become a symbol of hope of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, and of love. How could it be possible that something so evil could become the good news? If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. It's because God uses evil for our good. 
God will take the worst, turn it around, and give us his best. God will take what is horrific, and he will turn it around, and he will get glory from it. God loves to take what is evil and turn it around and use it for our good. God loves to take our worst and show us his best. The cross represents the worst of humanity, but yet at the same time, the cross represents the goodness of God's love for us. God loves to take what is evil and turn it around and use it for our good. That's what the cross represents. Did you know the cross wasn't actually the first symbol of Christianity? The early Christian symbols were that of a a rainbow because it showed God's promises to us. Another symbol was that of the dove, representing how the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. Some people wanted to use the the fishes and the loaves, showing that God provides and works miracles in our lives. But around 300 AD, with the church father Tertullian, they settled on the cross as being the symbol of Christianity. Something so vile, so wretched, so evil has now become what we call the good news. And 2,000 years later, right now, gathered every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every place on the planet, there is a church filled with people just like you and me who have banked their eternity on the message of the cross. Why? Because God uses evil for our good. That's the history of the cross. The second thing I want to show you is the horror that is the cross. It says that, verse 20, and they led him outside and they crucified him. I want to show you, I want you to see, I want you to experience what Jesus experienced through the cross. Now, also, I want you to brace yourself because what I'm about to get into is pretty graphic. What I'm about to show you is real, it's raw, And most likely, according to the Journal of American Medical Association, this is what Jesus experienced on the cross. How many of you remember several years ago, whenever the Passion of the Christ first came out? The Passion of the Christ received an R rating. A lot of those in the church, they were confused because, well, growing up, they taught their kids, we're not allowed to watch R-rated movies. And then the Passion comes out, and it's got an R rating, and Some in the church were conflicted, and some were angry, and some were upset. Why? Because we've sanitized the cross. And when we sanitize the cross, we we make ourselves unable to fathom the depths of the cross. I remember not being a Christian when the passion came out. I went and saw it with a group of friends, and they weren't Christians either. But I remember being so moved just watching it in theaters. I had other atheists and agnostics and even critics. They would watch the passion of the Christ, and they're filled with compassion about what Jesus endured and went through. Others were hyperventilating. Some had panic attacks. There was even reports that people had seizures and vomited in the theaters because it was so gruesome. And that was just a Hollywood depiction. Their best guess and imagination of what Jesus endured on the cross. So let me just walk you through Mark and show you what Jesus went through in our place for our sins with the horrors of the cross. Picking up in verse 21, it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. At this point in the story, Jesus has been awake for about 24 to 26 hours. If you've been with us through our study in the Gospel of Mark, Mark divides in two ways. Mark chapter 1 through 11 is about the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark 11, he slows down, zooms in, focuses in on the final week of Jesus' life. On that first day, he rides in on the triumphal entry. He goes into the temple, flips tables, gets in arguments and fights with the Pharisees. He has the last supper meal. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays. He literally sweats drops of blood because of the stress and the duress, a medical term known as hematidrosis, which is for those who are experiencing the most amount of anxiety. 
Soldiers experience this. Prisoners experience this. People awaiting their death. Only a limited amount of people in history have ever experienced what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Judas, his betrayer, turns him over to the Roman and the religious authorities. They arrest him under the cover of night. They drag him to the high priest's house. At the high priest's house, he is condemned for blasphemy, declaring himself to be God. They blindfold him. They beat him. They mock him. They rip his beard out from his face. They spit on him. And so our Lord Jesus has a black eye. He's got a busted nose, a cracked jaw, kicking him, beating him while he is down, blindfolded so he can't even see nor defend himself. This happens at about 3 o'clock in the morning. After his condemnation, they bring him to Pilate, the governor over Rome, and they have him condemned again. Pilate, knowing that Jesus would have been innocent, he hopes to appease the bloodlust of the religious leaders, and he, he has Jesus to be scourged, flogged and scourged. What that represents for us today is a beating to the inch of his life. What a scourging was was that they would actually take a person and they would stretch their entire body out naked and they would tie them hands to the top of the pole to where every square inch of their body and buttocks would be exposed. They took what is a, a cat of nine tails or a, a flagomer, which is a whip made of metal, ball bearing, and bone. And they would take this whip and they would beat the back of the person. So our Lord Jesus, stripped naked, tied to a post, is being beaten and flogged and scourged. And the leather from the whip would actually break the sound barrier. You ever heard a whip? You ever heard a whip break the sound barrier? That would be on Jesus' back. But the whip was actually filled with ball bearings, bones, and metal hooks. The ball bearings would actually tenderize the flesh, would bruise the flesh, making it soft and making it supple. So that way when the bones hit the flesh, it would fillet the skin off the person's back, leaving their back, their muscles, their nerves, and even the bones and internal organs to be exposed. Well, the metal hooks, they would dig into the flesh and they would peel it off of the person's back like filleting a fish. There's a scene in the Passion of the Christ where the hook gets stuck and they have to yank it out and blood flies across the crowd. That's actually pretty common. In the book, it actually says that it was not uncommon for it to catch a rib and dislodge it from the person's sternum. Most people died from the scourging alone. As they would collapse under their body, they would lay there, losing control of their bodily functions in the blood, in the tears, in the vomit, in the pain, and laying there in the middle, they would actually die just from the beating they experienced. But yet our Lord Jesus was strong. He was a tough man, 33 years of age, a carpenter for most of his life. He was a tough man, a strong man, and he survived not only the beating, the flogging, but he also survived the scourging. He is exhausted. He is sleep deprived. He has been beaten, mocked, ridiculed, and now he is naked, lying in a pool of his own blood. And that leads us to where we see right now is they lay the crossbar along his shoulders. The crossbar was about 100 pounds. He wouldn't have carried the entire cross. He would have just carried the crossbar. And they would lay it across his exposed shoulders. And he would have to carry this cross about a mile down a busy thoroughfare known as the Via Della Rosa. It's a very popular area in Jerusalem. And it's like a small, small streets. And vendors would be all along the side of the streets. It's a narrow path. It's a narrow road. And Jesus would walk down that way carrying his cross. But Mark tells us that they actually had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. Luke's gospel tells us why, because Jesus fell. And this is not him just tripping and falling. 
but he has a crossbar tied to his shoulders, and under the weight of the bar, he trips and falls face first onto the cobblestone concrete or the dirt. Medical doctors say that what Jesus experienced just by the trip and fall would have led to a deep chest contusion, a collapsed lung, and it would have been the equivalent of getting in a head-on car crash without a seatbelt and no airbag. And Jesus falls. And so they get a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus. And Mark adds something that's really interesting. Not only does Mark give us this guy's name, but it also mentions the name of his son. So why would Mark say Alexander and Rufus? Why would he give us that much detail? Well, if you remember, Mark's writing to the church at Rome. And in Romans chapter 16, when Paul is giving his farewell address, his gratitude and thank yous, he says, oh, by the way, tell Rufus and Alexander I say hi. Because Simon of Cyrene, while carrying that cross, he met Jesus, and he became a leader in the early church. Watching Jesus go through this, he said, I'm going to follow this man. I'm going to give my life to this man. And in that moment, he converted to Christ, and he raised his sons in the church. And his sons became deacons and maybe elders and leaders in the early church. And what that goes to show is this, is that when you meet Jesus, everything in your life changes. When you meet Jesus, everything changes. That's why the cross is of first importance. The cross meant For Rufus and for Alexander, a dad who loved the Lord. You want to be a man who loves Jesus and has a good family? Look to the cross. It means a legacy left behind. You want to leave a legacy with your life? Look at the cross. It's of first importance. But the other thing it shows us is this, is this is real. Mark gives people's names. If you're making stuff up, you don't give people's names. He says, you don't believe me that this happened? Go ask Simon. He's sitting right there. Go ask Alexander. Go ask Rufus. They're in their church. They seen an eyewitnesses to the horrors that is the cross. Christianity is factual, it's historical, and it's real. These are real people who lived real lives who had a real encounter with a real Jesus, and their lives were really changed. He says, Simon, Alexander, and Rufus, they carried the cross of Jesus. Well, the story continues, and what we see next is this. And they brought him up to the place that is Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. I have a photo of it right here. And you can see from the rock formations why it would get this name, the, the place of the skull. This is where Jesus would have been crucified. Now, Jewish legend actually says that it got this name because this is the place where Goliath's head was buried. If you are familiar with the Bible in 1 Samuel, after David kills Goliath, he chops the head off of Goliath. And then there's this one verse that says, and he brought the head to Jerusalem. According to Jewish history, they say this is where Goliath's head would have been buried. And I just find that, if possible, just very fitting because David is an Old Testament symbol of Jesus Christ. And how Jesus defeats our enemy of sin and death. And then he comes back victorious as our king. It also shows the place of the skull with the two rock formations that look like an eye. And I just see the invisible hand of God working through all of this. That a place of death would become the place that we receive life. And the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent will bruise the heel, but he will crush the head, took place on a place known as the place of the skull. All the way back from Genesis chapter 3, God has been prophesying, predicting, and preparing the hearts of the people for the coming of the Lord Jesus, who would die in their place and give us eternal life at the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and they divided the garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each one would take. Now, don't think that this is out of kindness, where they're feeling sorry for Jesus or pity for Jesus. And so they decide, hey, let's give him a little bit of wine mixed with a little bit of myrrh. 
to make him feel better. That's not what this is. The wine mixed with myrrh would actually have been a sedative, but not to alleviate the pain, but to make it easier to inflict more torture upon Jesus, to make their jobs just a little bit easier. But Jesus doesn't take the sedative. He actually spits it out. Why would Jesus not take the sedative? Because at the cross, Jesus would experience the full weight of the sins of the world. He didn't want a shortcut. There was no easy way out. Jesus did not take the path of least resistance. And God laid every ounce of sin upon his shoulder, every ounce of pain and hurt and trauma and horror. Jesus would experience all of it because he didn't want anything to take away from what he was enduring for our sins. And then it says they were casting lots and gambling for his clothes. This means that our Lord Jesus was stripped naked. I just find it amazing that God become a man and publicly be humiliated and exposed in front of everyone. Nakedness is a sign of shame. And I just see Jesus on the cross naked. Humiliated, being mocked, being laughed at, being spit on. And then he looks down and he sees people gambling for his clothes. The shame our Lord endured. The public ridicule that our God went through. And at the third hour, this is about nine o'clock in the morning, they crucified him. There's that word again. No detail, no description, no explanation, just they crucified him. So let me explain to you the, the horrors that is crucifixion. As Jesus makes his way to Golgotha, the place of the skull, they would lay his body down a Roman soldier on one side and the other would grab his arms and dislocate them from the sockets. Pull the legs, dislocate them from the hip sockets just so they could stretch it out just a little bit further. And then they would take basically the equivalent of railroad spikes, nine-inch nails, and they would drive it through the most painful centers of the human body, through the hands and the feet. There's even some now who are speculating that they would actually drive it maybe through the wrists or maybe through the bone of the ankles and the Achilles tendons. And they would stretch it out and they would hammer the nails into the hands of our Lord. And then when they would lift it up, they'd drop it in the hole and under the entire weight of his body, would collapse. Shocks of nerves on fire inside as he hangs there on the cross. But you didn't die from the pain. Actually, you would die of asphyxiation. The cause of death due to crucifixion was asphyxiation. That you would drown or you would suffer and choke or you'd be unable to breathe. So how would you drown? They, they would actually drown in their own bodily fluids. Through the tears, through the sweat, through the blood, through the swallowing of vomit, they would actually, their lungs would fill up with their bodily fluids, or you couldn't breathe. Have you ever been drowning? You ever had somebody choke you? Or maybe over the last year, if you got COVID and you found it very difficult to breathe, like somebody was sitting on your chest, that's how it would happen. And people could hang on the cross anywhere upwards of nine days, suffocating and asphyxiating on the cross. And the only way that you could actually catch your breath is if you were to pull yourself up by the nails and push yourself up by the nails in your feet, <gasps> take a breath, and then you would collapse under the weight again. Weak men, they would actually just slouch on purpose. They'd say, I just give up, and they would just slouch on purpose. 
And so what they would do is they would actually take a little seat and they would nail it to the cross and they would nail the man's scrotum to the cross to make sure they did not slouch. Didn't learn that in Sunday school, did you? Because when you sanitize the cross, you become desensitized to the cross. When you become so familiar with the cross, you actually become contemptuous of the cross. And you do not understand the pain and the horror that Jesus truly endured while he was hanging there on the cross. And then the inscription charged against him was this. King of the Jews. Here's your king. Some Lord and Savior he thinks he is. Some king. You want your king? Behold your king. And they ridiculed and they mocked him. And he was crucified between two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I remember several years ago, I had a friend who was not a Christian, and I had recently converted and I'm sitting there trying to share my faith with him and tell him about Jesus. And my friend said to me, he said, the only way that I will believe in God is if he were to come down and he would prove himself to me. If God showed up, then I would believe him. But until God shows up, I'm not going to believe him. You ever heard that? You ever said that? You're wrong. Do you know why? Because 2,000 years ago, God did show up. Because God did come. God did come and reveal himself to us through the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And for three years, publicly loving, blessing, serving, helping, performing signs, wonders, and miracles, welcoming the outcast, forgiving the unforgivable, touching the unclean, and in a moment, he made them clean. He came giving. He came with compassion. He came with a heart that was for the least of these. Jesus came. And you know what we did when God showed up? We killed him. We killed God. I want you to fathom this for a moment. The cross was something done by us. Who invented the cross? We did. Who came up with the cross? We did. If you're taking notes, write this down. The cross was something done by us. But at the same time, it was something done for us. The cross represents all of our greed and all of our pain and all of our hatred and all of our wretchedness and all of our vileness and all of our sin. The cross represents everything that is wrong with humanity and wrong with the world. The cross represents what we do and how we live apart from God. That our whole life, our backs are turned towards God, living in sin, doing what we want, when we want, however we want, and that's how we ended up with making a cross. The cross was something done by us. But at the same time, in his goodness and his mercy, God uses what is evil and turns it for our good. And the cross is something that was done for us at the same time. Jesus goes to the cross for us. Jesus dies the death that we deserve for us. Friends, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus goes to die the death that we deserve so that way we can have eternal life with him both now and forever. The cross was done by us, but the good news is this. The cross was something done for us. Listen to what the Bible actually has to say. Isaiah 53, it says he was wounded, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up 
for our trespasses. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered for our sins. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation, why? For our sins. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse, why? Why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus go through what he went through? Why did Jesus suffer? Why was Jesus beaten? Why was Jesus hung on a cross? The question is, why did he do this for us? So that way we can be forgiven for our sins. So that way you can have new life. That way you can have a new purpose. That way you can have a new destiny. That way you can have a new direction. That way you can have a new community. That way you can have grace and you can have mercy and you can have redemption and you can have salvation. That your past would be forgiven. That your future would be secure. And that you can be with him in relationship with God and with others. Why did Jesus do this? For your sins. The cross was done by us, but at the same time, the cross was done for us. Everything that Jesus experienced on the cross is what we deserved. Everything that Jesus endured on the cross is what we deserved. Everything that Jesus went through on the cross is what we deserved. And yet Jesus stood in our place, died the death that we deserve for our sins. That is the horror of the cross. Which leads us to the third thing I want us to see is this, is the humility of the cross. And when the sixth hour came, hanging on the cross now for about three hours, Jesus is in agony, suffering, torment, and pain. And at this moment, the great exchange begins to take place. The fulcrum of the entire gospel is now visible and on display. This is the penultimate moment of all of creation, the most important moment in all of human history, the most important man with the most important event takes place, the substitution and the atonement that Jesus does as he dies in our place. The gospel of Mark comes to its climax with the humility of the cross. Their darkness was over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hear it, it said, behold, he is calling out for Elijah. And some ran and they took a sponge with sour wine, they put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. When the centurion, when the centurion who was standing face with him saw that he had breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. It goes on and says, there were also women who were looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. And when he was in Galilee, the followers, they came and they ministered to him. And there also were many others, women, who came up with him to Jerusalem. My question for us is what kind of God does this? This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion, philosophy, or ideology says that you are saved by your good works, your good deeds, and living a basic good and moral life. If you're a good person, if you pay your taxes, walk your dog, don't beat your wife, then you get to go to heaven. If you go to this place, you wear these clothes, you pray in this language, you make this pilgrimage, you follow these seven pillars... If you speak in tongues, well, then you could make it into heaven. But it's all based on what you do. You have to earn it. You have to work hard to achieve it. And your entire life, if you want to go to heaven, is like you running on a wheel because you're nothing more than a rat to God. 
Work harder, try harder, do better. And we can even present ourselves with this veneer of virtue while on the inside we know who we really are. Christianity says this, you, you, you can't make your way to heaven. And so here's what our God does. Our God enters into history and he makes his way to us. Do you see the humility that our God has? In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself, taking on the likeness of man in the form of a servant, and he died for us. And not just any death, but he died the death on a cross. What this goes to show is that the cross doesn't only represent human nature, but it also represents the character of God. At the cross... It reveals God's character, God's compassion, God's goodness, God's lovingness, God's grace for us. It shows us what kind of God that we serve. We serve a God who humbles himself. We serve a God who enters into our mess. We serve a God who draws near to us. We serve a God who becomes like us in every single way. We serve a God who knows that we can't make our way to him. And so in his humility, he comes and he makes his way to us. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we love. This is the God that we hope and trust and we believe in. And the cross reveals the character of God. Let me just show you from the cross five characteristics of Christ. Five things that we see about Jesus. The first thing we see is that our God is just. It says there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour. Do you know what do you know what justice is? Or do you know what darkness represents? Darkness represents judgment. If you think back into the book of Exodus, there was 10 plagues that God sent on Egypt because they were horrible people enslaving an entire nation. And so God came and he brought justice on Egypt. And the ninth plague was of darkness preceded by the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn. And here we see in Mark, darkness preceded by the death of God's only begotten son. It's a, it's a form of judgment, that God is bringing judgment against the world because of the sins of the world. We live in a day and age to where everybody's so tolerant, everybody's so, 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 so God is love, God is love, God is love. Yes, God is love. But if we take that one attribute of God and we only focus on that, then we're not going to truly know who he really is. Right. And so while, yes, God is loving, the number one attribute in the Bible describing the character of God is the holiness of God. That God is pure, God is perfect, God is holy, God is just. And if God doesn't judge sin, he is not loving. How would you feel if someone committed a heinous crime against you and the judge said, no worries, you're going free? You would feel there is a case of injustice that happened. Every sin, psalmist tells us, is committed against God. So while everybody's out screaming about justice, it's fair that God gets his. God requires justice. Somebody's going to pay for sin. And in this moment, God begins to pour out his judgment on Jesus. This is doctrinally known as the doctrine of justification. That on the cross, God punishes Jesus in our place for our sins. That God pours out his wrath on Jesus for our sins. Somebody has to pay for sin. Sin accrues a debt, the wages of sin. That is a financial term. Somebody has to pay that debt. And so Jesus goes to the cross. Judgment is poured out. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. I'll pick up the tab. I'll give my life. I'll give my life as a ransom for those. And in that moment, the entire weight of every sin committed in all of human history is laid on the shoulders of Jesus. For those who believe in him, your sin is laid on the shoulders of Jesus, which means there is no more punishment for those who are in Christ. 
Romans tells us that now there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the cross, God laid on him who knew no sin to become sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He reaches all the way back into the Old Testament, the sins of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, and he lays it on the shoulders of Jesus. Cain and the murder and hatred lays it on the shoulders of Jesus. The idolatry of the nation of Israel laid upon the shoulders of Jesus. The adultery of David laid upon the shoulders of Jesus. He even reaches forward in time into the New Testament. He goes to the apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, who was a murderer of Christ. Christians lays his sin on the shoulders of Jesus and he reaches through human history and time even into your life for those who place their trust in him all of your sin all of your guilt all of your shame all of your separation in one moment laid upon the shoulders of Jesus he even reaches into the future to your children and to your children's children and he goes to their lives as well and he removes their shame and in that one moment it's all poured out on the Shoulders of Jesus, darkness covers the land, and in one instant, Jesus experiences the fully concentrated weight of the wrath of God, and for three hours, he suffers an infinite amount of souls in hell. And what we see is through this, is that Jesus goes through this hell, so that way we don't have to go through hell. And we don't have to go to hell. Because Jesus, he received the justice of God. The, the second thing we see is this. Our God is relational. He cries out. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God. What I find so fascinating is this. He doesn't call God Father. Every time. That Jesus talks about God, he says, Father, Father, my Father, Father. In the garden, he prays Abba, which means Daddy, Father. It's an affectionate term. But yet on the cross, he doesn't say Father. He says, my God. Well, why would he do that? Two reasons. One, he's actually quoting a prophecy in Psalm chapter 22 from David as it talks about the cross. But number two, because in this moment, Jesus was forsaken by the Father. That God had separated himself and Jesus goes to the cross and he bears the weight of our sins completely alone. All of eternity, Jesus had access and relationship through the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Perfect unity and harmony and oneness between them. And yet on the cross, he is separated from God. And there is a physical suffering that is very real, but at the same time, there is a spiritual suffering that Jesus endures, the separation of the Father. Because that's what sin is. Sin is separation. Sin is being separated from someone you love. That's why when someone sins against you, it hurts. That's why relationships fail when sin enters into the mix. That's why husbands and wives divorce because of sin. That's why there's tension in our jobs, in our families, in our homes, because there's sin. And in this moment, Jesus becomes sin, and it leads to a separation with God. And so he no longer says, my father, he says, my God. Because sin separated Jesus from the father as well. But what Jesus does is this. Jesus is forsaken by God, so that way we can be forgiven by God. He's relational like that. He's so relational that he wants you to come into a relationship with him. That he wants you to not live a life of separation, but that you can experience salvation, which brings about reconciliation in your life, so that way you can have a close and personal relationship with Jesus, both now and forever. Our Jesus was forsaken by the Father so we can be forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of God. And on the cross, Jesus did that because our God is a relational God. The third thing we see is this. Our God, he is sovereign. It means he is in control. I love what it says here, that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This is not a wimpy cry from Jesus. This is not a whimper. This is not a somber cry. He didn't mutter it under his breath but rather he uttered it with a loud cry. John's gospel tells us what he actually said. 
He said, it is finished. And he breathed his last and he gave up the spirit. Jesus was strong up until the very moment. Jesus retained his strength up until the very moment, so much so that he could yell out in a loud voice, and then he gave up his spirit. That means that Jesus was in control this entire time. That Jesus, he was sovereign over all the situations that had culminated up until this event. Jesus, he, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly where he was going. So don't feel sorry for Jesus. Don't feel pity for Jesus. Oh, poor Jesus. I can't believe that they did that to him. Don't feel sorry for Jesus because Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus was the victor. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing up until this moment. And he says, it is finished. And he breathed his last and gave up the spirits. Elsewhere in John, it says this, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. And I have the authority to take it back up again. Jesus gave his life. Nobody took his life from him. He gave his life freely because he was sovereign in control throughout the entire time. Hasn't it been fascinating studying through the gospel of Mark and just seeing every prophecy, every prediction that Jesus made and just watching the whole story unfold? Four times he's already predicted his death and resurrection. Mark chapter 8, he says the son of man must suffer, die, and give his life for many. Mark chapter 9, he will be betrayed and given over to the high priests and religious leaders, and he will die. And then Mark chapter 10, I will be crucified. Mark 14, he reminds them one more time, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. Strike the, she the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Four times, hey, guess what? They're going to kill me, but I give my life as a ransom for many. He was in sovereign control through the entire process. Number four we see is this. Our God, he is present. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. In the temple, the centerpiece of all of religious history at that time, there would have been a large temple dividing the holy of holies from the holy place. And only a priest was allowed into the, to the holy of holies. And they would have to go and they would have to atone for the sins of the people. But the priest had to be perfect and follow all the different rituals in order, the washing and the rituals and the fasting and the cleansing, because if not, he would be struck down dead and they'd have to drag him out. And so only a select men and only a certain few were allowed once a year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur into the holy of holies. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, after he breathed his last, the, the temple curtain, 40 feet tall, the depth and the width of a man's hand. That's how thick this is. They said it would take 100 priests to be able to just move the curtain. The curtain temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, as if a person were to go in and do it, but from the top to the bottom. And what this symbolizes for us is this, is that now, because of the death of Jesus, you and me, we have access to God. That God is no longer contained in temples made by hand, but he takes our hearts and he dwells with us. That God is with you. God is near to you. God is for you. God is right there with you. He is available to you today. You have access to only what the high priest one time a year in the Old Testament had access to. Now you and me and every single person in this room, because of the death of Jesus, we have access with God. That God is with us in us for us we have access to God we do not enter into his presence Hebrews tells us by the blood of bulls and goats but because of the blood of Jesus we can boldly go before the throne of God that means he hears your prayers it means he forgives your sins that means he listens and cares for you and he invites you in because you have access now the fifth thing is this, that our God is available. It says that the Roman centurion with blood on his hands, the one who ripped the shoulders out of the socket, took the nails, drove it through the hands of Jesus, looks up at the cross and he says, truly this man is the son of God. 
And then it goes on and describes the women and the disciples, and they still don't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Mark chapter 1 opens up. This is the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then for all of the book of Mark, Jesus is saying, do you see me yet? Do you know who I am yet? Do you recognize me now? Mark chapter 1, they don't get it. Mark chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. They don't see him. They don't get it. They don't believe him. Mark chapter 15, the first person who ever publicly professes that Jesus is the son of God is a Roman centurion. Not the disciples, not the Pharisees, not the religious leaders, not the ones with a seminary degree, not the best, not the elites, but a Roman, an enemy of God, the furthest you could ever be from God is the first person who says, this man is the son of God. What this goes to show me is this, is you are never too far to see Jesus. You have never done too much to be loved by Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you're at. He is available to all. He's available to you. He's available to you and me and to every single person who has ever lived, no matter where you find yourself at today, he is available for you. You say, but I've done so much. You aren't a Roman centurion, are you? And the Roman centurion says, he is the son of God. And even the centurion gets saved. If you think you can outsend the cross, you think too highly of yourself. If you think you've done too much, you don't know the meaning of the cross. And you don't know how much the love of God can change your life. This is the God that we serve. And the cross reveals the character of our God, that he is just, that our God is relational, that our God, he has given us access to him. This is the God that we love. This is the God that we serve. He is sovereign and he is available and the cross represents the character of God, which leads us to the fourth point as we close, is that there is hope in the cross. At this point, you might be wondering, okay, Byron, what does this have to do with me? What does one man's death 2,000 years ago have to do with me and my life? That's a great story. It's a good story, but I just don't believe that it's true. I don't believe that it's real. What hope does it have? What does it offer for me? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes and he says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To a lost and dying world, the cross looks foolishness. To a lost and dying world, the cross doesn't make sense. How can one man's death forgive everybody else? The cross doesn't make sense. But for those of us, who have put our hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation. Yes. That our lives don't have to be where they were at. We can have a new life with him. That we don't have to be the person that we were. We can become the person God created us to be. We don't have to live the way we live. We can have a new life with him both now and forever. That is the hope of the cross. And if you're here today and you're looking for meaning and you're looking for reason and you're looking for value and you're looking for worth, I will just tell you this, that hope is found at the foot of the cross. 
Simon of Cyrene looked up and he found hope at the foot of the cross. The Roman centurion looked up. Truly this man is the son of God and he found hope at the cross. And you and me and everyone in this room, we can find hope at the foot of the cross. If you're looking for meaning in your life, it's at the foot of the cross. If you're looking for reason in your life, it's at the foot of the cross. If you're looking for purpose in your life, it's at the foot of the cross. If you're looking for mercy that's new every single morning, it's found at the foot of the cross. If you're looking for grace, it's found at the foot of the cross. If you're ever wondering, can God forgive me? All you gotta do is look to the cross. If you're wondering, does God love me? All you gotta do is look at the cross. If you're wanting to have strength, look to the cross. If you're wanting to have wisdom for your life, look to the cross. If you're wondering about direction and where you should go, you should turn and you should look at the cross because everything is found at the foot of the cross. If I had one sermon to preach to you, it would be about the cross because everything finds its meaning at the foot of the cross. The most important thing is the cross. There is nothing more beautiful than the cross. There is nothing more powerful than the cross. There is nothing more wonderful than the cross. There is nothing more meaningful than the cross. There is nothing more significant than the cross. There is nothing that could change your life quite like when you see the cross. Hope is found at the foot of the cross. I'll close with this quote from Billy Graham, the great evangelist. He says this, for the believer, there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus has opened the door to heaven for us by his death and resurrection. We have hope. If you're here today and you need hope, hope is found at the foot of the cross. And if you've wandered away from the cross, I invite you to come back to the cross. If you've become too familiar with the cross, you've taken it for granted, I pray that you come back to the cross and that you and me in this church and redemption we would never graduate beyond the cross and we would never lose the glory of the cross and that we would not be a church that ever takes the cross for granted because it has the power of salvation to those who believe.